Hello and welcome to the Scriptures Are Real podcast, the podcast where we talk about elements of the scriptures that have become real to us and real in our lives because we believe there's power in the scriptures and we want to draw as much of that power into our lives and the lives of our families as possible. I'm your host, Kerry Mielstein, and this will be a short cast where we talk about one of my favorite uh, ver- or chapters in scripture, and that is Exodus chapter 15. It's known as the Song of the Sea because it's the song about what happened in the Red Sea. And this is uh, very old Hebrew. When you read this in Hebrew, it's very clear that it's older than most Hebrew. Uh, I, I know this one fairly well. This actually was the uh, one of the chapters that was on my uh, PhD Hebrew exam. And uh, I had to translate this one. And it's it's tricky because it is much older. And that's that's a clue that this really is an old song. What we have are two songs in it. One's a long one by Moses. That's the first several verses. And then we get uh, verse going in verse 20. And Miriam, the prophetess, uh, also sings. And we just have a, a short line from her. Uh, but in any case, typically poems and songs are frozen in, in time the way that they were when they were composed. And we don't change them. For So, for example... Shakespeare. We do Shakespeare, even though that's really old English for us, uh, not as old as this Hebrew is, but uh, really old English for us. We do it the way it was written because it's that's how it was written. Same thing with Beowulf, even older. But it's a poem, so you don't change a poem. If you want to change a story, if you retell a story, then you can update that into your own language and say it in your own words. But a poem or a song, you leave the way it is and it stays old. So this is a very, very old one. Uh, and I suspect it's, it comes to us the way it actually was when it was first composed. Uh, it's beautiful stuff, but there's one thing that I really want to focus on that I think we often uh, don't catch as a main theme in scriptures. And it's, it's in some ways, it started here. It, it, you can kind of see it uh, before this, but this is where it really starts. And that's the idea that the Lord is a God or a man of war or sometimes we use the phrase divine warrior. So let's just start out uh, here in Moses or Exodus chapter 15. Um, and it, it says, Moses sang to the children of Israel and spake saying. So here's the, the saying. It's like the quotation mark. What's after this is what he actually said. I will sing unto the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will prepare him an habitation for my father's God, and I will exalt him. So you see how he's talking about both how he's his God, but he understands this is the God of the covenant. And uh, and he's talking about uh, that he's going to make a tabernacle or something along those lines. But uh, he's definitely tying this into the covenant. But now look at the next line in verse 3. We'll read 3 through Five. Well, we'll we'll do three through six. Well, three through seven. Eight. All right. So we're going to do three through eight. All right. The Lord is a man of war. That's something that we don't feel comfortable with in our day. I'm going to come back to that. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord, or in other words, Jehovah, is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host hath he cast into the sea. His chosen captains also were drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sink into the bottom as a stone. Thy right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Thy right hand, O Lord, hath dashed in pieces the enemy. And in the greatness of thine excellency, 
Thou hast overthrown them that rose up against thee. Thou sentest forth thy wrath, which consumed them as stubble. And with the blast of thy nostrils, the waters were gathered together. The flood stood up upright as an heap, and the depths were congealed in the heart of the sea. Verse 9 and 10, the enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My lust shall be satisfied upon them, I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. Thou didst blow with thy wind, the sea covered them, they sank as lead in the mighty waters. So this is something that, that we frequently, we just don't like it uh, in our culture. We, we want God to be just nice and, and uh, friend and warm and fuzzy. I'll just tell you that in several different settings, as I've spoken with children and youth, and I ask them what it means that Christ is their Savior, they really have a hard time recognizing what that means. Uh, they will say, he's my friend, or he's there for me, or he loves me, all of which are absolutely true, and we absolutely need to know that God does love us, and we need to know that he's there for us. But that's not what a Savior is. A Savior is someone who saves you when you need saving and you cannot save yourself. And for Israel and this and many situations, that needs a man of war or a divine warrior, someone who will fight their battles for them. And that gives us so much confidence and so much peace. I think that we will live in a world of anxiety and fear when we only have faith in a loving God, but not a saving God. We need a God who loves us enough to want to save us and who is powerful enough and willing to save us. And saving us means delivering us from oppression. Sometimes that oppression is something like anxiety or depression or addiction. Sometimes that oppression is something like death or hell. But sometimes that oppression is other people who oppress God's people. And God will deliver us from whatever form of oppression is coming. And the bad news for the oppressors is that that means that they will be the ones on the wrong side of God's delivering power. So that's a warning for us. We should make sure we're not on the wrong side of God's delivering power. But we should also be grateful that we have a God who will fight for us and will conquer. I'm so grateful that he will conquer death and hell. I'm also grateful that he will conquer my own fallen nature. And I'm grateful he'll conquer all sorts of other things in between. And sometimes we need him to conquer other people. Sometimes we need him to conquer us. Sometimes we need him to conquer diseases. There are all sorts of things that we need him to conquer, but we need a man of war, someone who with a blast of his nostrils can dry, create dry land for us and then crash the waves in upon our enemies. If we don't have faith in that kind of a God, we can't have faith unto salvation and we can't find peace in this life. We will instead find fear, comfort from being loved, but fear because we won't be sure of deliverance. And so we need to be able to trust in a God who, as it says in verse 12, thou stretchest out thy right hand and the earth swallowed them. Or in verse 11, who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? So note what they're saying. This is part of that message we talked about when we did talk about the plagues. It becomes clear that God is more powerful than everyone and everything else. 
So all the false gods are nothing. There is only Jehovah. And he asks, who is like the glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? That's a description of God we should rejoice in. And yet we take so much of the worldly culture around us, sometimes we don't rejoice in it. We want the kind of God that the world tells us we should want, not the kind of God that the scriptures paint for us. And so I would invite you, as you read the Old Testament this year, to look for God describing himself the way he wants to describe himself. Don't hide parts of the way he hides he describes himself. Allow him to describe himself the way he wants to, present himself the way he wants to. And I think we'll find that we have greater faith unto salvation when we believe in God the way he presents himself to us. That's a beautiful thing. Let's just review a little bit this part about Miriam. Verse 20, and Miriam the prophetess. That's a phrase we shouldn't skip over. A prophetess. So a prophet is someone who is inspired to say God's will. Now, this is important if we're going to understand the Old Testament. They do not use the word prophet the way we use it. We have come to use the word prophet only to mean the presiding high priest. And that's a great usage of it so that when I say the prophet, I mean right now, President Russell M. Nelson, whom I testify as a prophet, is God's mouthpiece on the earth and the leader of his church and represents God to us. I testify of that. He is a presiding high priest. I'm grateful for that. I've, I, I have no doubt, and I'm so glad about that. But that's not how the phrase is typically used in the scriptures. There isn't necessarily a presiding high priest being referred to, but someone who is inspired to teach God's will. So, for example, you'll have uh, Jeremiah, Lehi, Ezekiel, and others who are all prophets at the same time, uh, or Isaiah and Micah and uh, possibly Amos are overlapping. Uh, so they're all prophets at the same time. Uh, it's someone who is inspired to say what God wants them to say. And that means there are also prophetesses. Someone who is inspired by God to say what he wants them to say. Uh, and I, for example, I am grateful and rejoice in the fact that my wife is a prophetess. She has been inspired to teach things in our family. And I am so grateful that she has taught God's will and represented God to our family as she should. That makes her a prophetess. We should rejoice in prophetesses. So here we have Miriam, the prophetess, who is the sister of Aaron, which means she's also the sister of Moses. And she takes a timbrel in her hand. So this is uh, something like a tambourine or something like this. And all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dances. So they, uh, Moses sings a song and they rejoice and they dance before the Lord. This is not something we do really either, on, except on rare occasion, but they dance before the Lord. And then we get verse 21. And Miriam answered them, sing ye to the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. That's the whole song. That's a short song, but note the emphasis. God has triumphed and he has gotten rid of our enemies. Thank, literally thank God for a God who triumphs over our enemies, all of our enemies, whatever they are. Thank God for that. He can, he does, and he will because he loves us and because he is a powerful God, a divine warrior who is more than willing to triumph for us and more than able to triumph for us. And of that I testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.